Hey, everybody. I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome back to primetime. I know this is our normal time, but we did eight. And now we're doing a second hour, which is actually our regular hour. Hey, why should anybody and anything be clear these days? Everything's confusing. The president should be more worried about this virus. And in fact, I argue to you, he is more worried than he's telling you. How do we know? Because look how he is reacting to it being in the White House. It's not just one case now. It's two among White House staffers. Today, he revealed that the vice president's press secretary has it, Katie Miller. She is the woman without the mask in the picture in front of your face. She is the wife of one of his top aides, Stephen Miller. Now, look, I hope uh, that there are light symptoms and they pass quickly and no one else in her family gets it. Okay, her diagnosis comes a day after confirmation that the president's personal valet tested positive. This thing spreads That's why you need testing and tracing. What is their response in the White House? Everybody's got to get tested every day. And we have to trace. Where was Katie? Who was she with? And the valet, who was he with? We have to trace it. Exactly. So why does this president downplay testing as unreliable or overrated when he's having it done more than ever around him? Why is he saying that tracing isn't necessary and that this thing's just going to go away when everything that's happening around him shows the truth. And by the way, he's still not 100% safe from this. He doesn't want to wear masks. He's not even, uh, you know, letting other people to protect him from exposure. So let's take that to our chief doctor, Sanjay Gupta. First things first, we only have one president, okay? And if people around you are getting cases, which let's be honest, was inevitable, right? The way this thing spreads, what has to be done for him, whether he likes it or not? Well, so the testing is important. And, you know, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about it. But I think the point you're making, the correct point, is that you obviously would rather not get the infection in the first place. I mean, uh, nobody wants it. He is, uh, uh, being that he's in his 70s, he's more vulnerable to have more of the uh, serious sickness if he does get infected. So you don't want to get this. And that involves protecting him like you'd protect anybody else. Challenge about the White House uh, is that it's very hard to, to maintain physical distance over there. People are in close proximity. I've been over there. You've been over there. Even at those press briefings, you see how close people are. It's a contagious virus. It's not inevitable that people will get it, but, you know, it's a contagious virus. And the closer you are without protection, that's a problem. So testing, yes. But the mask thing, Chris, I mean, it's, it's not perfect, but we do everything we can to mitigate the spread, to decrease the amount of virus you're putting into the environment. So yes, people around the president should have, should have masks on. I mean, this, this is like secret service. I asked ambassador Brooks about this secret service is there to protect the president. Who's protecting him from the, from the virus and who's protecting everyone else for that matter. And does he have to have a mask on also? He was getting some heat about that. He said, I had one on backstage. I couldn't wear it around the elderly veterans because it was blowing off. Um, what is the reality of what we need there? The, the, the guidance is that you, you should be wearing a mask if you're going to be in proximity of people where you can't physically distance. I mean, that's it. I mean, frankly, you know, we are getting into a situation now where most people probably want to wear masks in public, period. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, a very contagious virus. We are still, you know, having many people who become infected, obviously. Uh, we need to do everything we can 
to try and slow down the spread. I mean, th- this is all I can say. I mean, you know, I know people are going to say, well, you know, it's, I was six and a half feet away and trying to find the loopholes in this, and we can keep doing that. I remember having a conversation with you a couple months ago where people were saying it's okay to be running in, in close proximity to people on, on the Embarcadero, and, and that, that's fine because it says exercise outside but they weren't still keeping physical distance. And now it seems silly to have done that. We're going to learn so much, Chris, that three weeks from now, the idea that we're arguing about hair salons and wearing masks is going to seem silly. It's just going to seem silly. We're we're really focusing on the trivial aspects of this. You should wear a mask. People should get tested. We should contain this virus. All that stuff is true. It will remain true. You know, we're we're just not doing some of the stuff that we can do. Look, here's the thing that bothers me. Um, The mask thing, look, You are right. I'll give people a little bit of space and a little bit of a learning curve because we've been all over the place with masks. Um, So I get it. There's a little confusion. They'll get up to speed. Here's what I can't accept. Okay, this president has been going contrary to fact and common sense from jump about testing. The only reason he doesn't like testing is because it reveals the truth of a situation he wants to go away. And the more we test, the more we see it is not going away, that there is no data basis for reopening right now other than his enthusiasm. And the reality of it, Sanjay, I don't usually talk politics with you, but the reality of it is look at what they're doing in the White House. If testing doesn't mean a damn thing, then why are they testing the hell out of everybody every day? If tracing is over, is hyper-reactive here, then why are they tracing so much with their two cases? You know, why are they acting in the exact way that people like you are asking for them to act uh, with respect to the entire country? They, they, they're doing it because it's the right thing to do now, right? They know they need to test. They know they need to trace. Everybody knows this. There's no, you know, the medical community isn't always in with one voice on everything. But so far, on most of the stuff that's been happening with testing and tracing, they've been speaking with one, one voice. Maybe they say uh, the exact number of tests. Some will say suggest one number, a million a day. Others will suggest 500,000 a day. The fact is that we need to test and trace. And by the way, to, if, if the point is that we want to ultimately bring down the number of cases, that's what it's going to take. Yes, it might expose that there are more cases than we realize in the, in the beginning, but that might also show us that maybe the, the lethality rate, the, the fatality rate is lower as well. If there's a lot of people out there who are carrying the virus who aren't getting sick, that's data. That's important data. And it might actually be a little bit calming data because it may bring down the fatality rate in this country. But the way to really bring the numbers down ultimately is to test. Right. To test and to trace and then to hopefully treat. And look, it's a quick argument to win. Any of you who are saying I'm not being fair to the president, uh, that he takes it serious, he means what he says, it's going to go away, then right now that's what he should be saying. I'm not going to get tested every day. This is going to go away. It's not a big deal. We're not going to trace and test. It's okay. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's overdone. We'll be all right. He's not saying any of that. He's taking all of the best advice to do all the testing and all the tracing because when it comes to him, he's acting in a way that he doesn't act when it comes to you. Now, let me ask you something else uh, that is about medical in nature. At first, Kawasaki syndrome... Uh, seemed to be this kind of esoteric thing that uh, was popping up a little bit, but we don't really know if it's related. Now, there are more kids getting sick. Is this just us paying more attention to Kawasaki syndrome? Or do we believe that there is a reason to see some type of overlap with this virus? 
Yeah, th- th- it's a good question, Chris. I mean, you know, you always do worry about observer bias in a situation like this. When, when everything is COVID, then everything must be related to COVID. And that could be the situation here. But I don't know. It's looking a, lo- a more suspicious because there was 15 kids. Your, your brother was talking about 73 children uh, who had some form of this inflammatory disease. Kawasaki's is sort of think of that like a, a, a inflammatory disease of many different systems of the body primarily affects blood vessels, and that's what can make it so dangerous, including the blood vessels around the heart, the coronary blood vessels. I think we have some pictures of the rashes and things like that that people develop. But nevertheless, in that first uh, series of 15 patients, four of the children uh, did have active virus. Uh, the, the diagnostic tests came back positive. Six of the kids had antibodies to the virus. So 10 now of the 15 had some relationship to the, the COVID disease. Five didn't seem to have it. Did they miss it? Was it a false negative? You, you don't know because, again, the testing's not perfect here. But the idea that this, this disease, even in its aftermath, even in its recovery phase, Chris, which you know about, could still be lingering in some ways. It could still be causing inflammation. That's something we need to know. We need to figure out whether these kids need to be treated with some sort of anti-inflammatory. Not aspirin, by the way. Don't give kids aspirin. I think most parents know that. But if kids do need to be given some kind of inflammatory, anti-inflammatory, when to give it? Might it have a, a benefit here? This is what investigators are looking into. It is still rare, Chris, even with the numbers that we've seen this past week. It's still a very rare thing. But we would do well to keep an eye on it. There was an alert that went out two weeks ago. I was on this alert, went out to all the hospitals in the UK, said basically be on the lookout for for Kawasaki disease, maybe related to coronavirus. We are starting to now hear that in the United States. Look, and it could be, and again, some of this is speculative, but they're seeing enough data points that they're going to look at it, uh, that this virus beats you down in a way that makes you more susceptible to other things. And that may include with kids who have been somewhat vulnerable, uh, invulnerable to this, thank God, um, this disease called Kawasaki. Um, so, look, we'll see. We need more data, but it's worth being worried about, especially when you've got a five-year-old boy passing away uh, right. from the complications. Mm-hmm. Sanjay, thank you so much for making situ- uh, sense of the situation. God bless you. Have a great weekend. You too, buddy. Take care. Big move in California ahead of November's election. And it's because of coronavirus. Mail-in ballots now available for all. It's a controversial decision. I'm not sure why. Uh, Let's look at it through the context of Ohio's primary less than two weeks ago. Ohio is actually more advanced when it comes to mail-in balloting and time and leeway. And the governor there extended the time in that key battleground state. Uh, And they wound up doing all mail as a test run. So how did it go? Mixed results. But I want to hear from the man in charge, Governor Mike DeWine. How does he feel it went? What does he think is the instruction for the rest of the country? Next. All right. So this is really important uh, as we put eyes on November and the all important presidential and all the elections that are on the slate. In California, the governor wants voters to mail in their ballots in November exclusively. He passed an executive order today. Uh, that makes California the first in the nation to do this for a November contest, which, of course, you know, includes the presidential ballot. Now, the way it'll work is that they will send ballots to all 20 million plus voters there. This is an idea that California did not create. We just saw a test run of it in the Ohio primary. So let's bring in the governor of that key swing state, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Gov, always a pleasure. Good to see you, Chris. So, hey, Chris, by the way, that was 
I just say that was a great piece on tracing. Um, people are going to get really familiar with tracing. Uh, it's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, and I think you guys explained it very, very well. Very important. And I won't be your advocate, but I will pretend to be uh, just so you have uh, some culpable deniability. Um, it is not fair to ask you to do it and not give you the money to do it. It is very expensive to get these workers, train them, deploy them, aggregate the data, make the calls and the follow up. And to ask states to do it and not give you the money to do it is basically asking you not to do it. So I hope that changes. But, I, know, I know you want to cooperate well, and but, I know you want good relations, but it's a tough mandate. But, but we can use the money, Chris, yeah. uh, that, that Congress and the president gave us with the coronavirus money coming at us. And we're going to we're going to use that money. Uh, so, you know, we're out hiring people now and our, our health departments are are hiring people. So it's. It's important, and uh, we're, we're, we're excited about doing it. We hope to stand up about 1,800 people uh, in Ohio doing this, and if it takes more, we're, we're going to get more. If they offered you 10 times that, I'm sure you'd take it, because the more uh, <laughs> and the faster you get the data for people, the more confidence they'll have to go out. Reopening doesn't restart the economy. People going out, the consumer is what restarts it, not the supply side. No, and no, no. You're, you're, you're seeing you're, in polls, you're even right. in Ohio, people, have to have people are nervous. You know, we've seen recent people polls. People have to have confidence. Right. Even from your own local paper, uh, they have a poll out, uh, the Plain Dealer, I think, saying, you know, people are really nervous about getting back out there. And with good reason. You're not giving them reason not to be worried about it. You don't see the data. You don't see the trends. Why would they believe and go out? They're not going to believe politicians, even a straight shooter like DeWine. <laughs> Well, one thing we have done uh, is we think we as we open the different businesses, we've got great protocols. Mm -hmm. And so we're able to assure people uh, that at least, you know, we've come up with the best protocols based upon what science says, what what our health community says and what the business people who are actually doing it or the professionals or who are actually doing it. So but it is a matter of confidence and people have to feel confident or they're not going to they're not going to go out and they're not going to, you know, get a haircut or they're not going to go go uh, go to the restaurant or, or whatever it is. No so, doubt about it. It's confidence. So looking at what you just did in the primary uh, from a balloting perspective, I read all these different reviews of it. There are criticisms, things that should have been done sooner uh, and how you deal with everybody getting a ballot and giving people an option to go online and get a ballot, figure out how to keep that secure. Um, but overall, do you believe for November you can approach uh, something like an all mail-in situation or enough mail-in ballots so that anyone who doesn't want to go in person would still be able to exercise their franchise? Well, the good thing about Ohio law in regard to this coronavirus is that people have four weeks to vote and they can vote absentee. No, they don't have to give any reason. They just want an absentee ballot. They also can go in on certain days to the Board of Elections. They can go in uh, and even the weekend before they can go in. So it's it's it will have the ability to spread it out. But anybody can be at home and know during that whole period of time, if I if I send an application in, I can get a ballot. I never have to leave my home. And, um, you know, what we hope is that we'll have that four week period of time and then we'll have the regular election where people for 13 hours in Ohio can go vote. Uh, so we think we're in pretty good shape as we as we move towards that that November election. All right. And again, we'll have to see what it looks like as we get closer. The safeguards that are needed, sure. the optionality for people. And we'll keep talking about it. It's a good dialogue to have. One of the silver linings of this is, you know, I have open rapport with governors all over the country. I wouldn't have had 
uh, otherwise. And as people know, media is not your friend. Uh, you know, you can't trust them. Relationships matter that people know they can come on the show and talk about things, not get their head chopped off. Uh, one of the things uh, that is coming up in Ohio about how you reopen, uh, you're doing messaging about masking. Um, you got pushback as we talked here on the show. You've made some accommodations um, for that. Um, there's a new uh, concern that the state, and I want you to be able to respond to this, Gov. The state is encouraging companies report workers who don't return so we can kick them off unemployment. Is that uh, what you're asking? Well, it's not. Yeah, it's not quite like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a law that's been in Ohio for a long time. It's basically if you somebody gets unemployment uh, and then you you call them back to work. And if they don't come back to work, then they can lose their unemployment. But that's so like a malingering it, it's law. It's nothing. It's. I don't know if it's a malingering law. I think most states have that. Uh, right. For, ma- for malingering, people to... who can work yeah. but don't. So they're not on the public dole when they could be working. But isn't this different? Because That's an old term, Chris. Well, I'm an old guy. <laughs> this aged me. Yeah. Look at my hair. So, but if somebody's worried about the pandemic and worried about the virus and exposing their family or themselves and they don't want to go back to work, don't you want to put in place some kind of accommodation given the special circumstances? Well, we certainly have asked employers to take that into consideration. Uh, And, you know, if someone is afraid to go back to work, uh, then no one should be going into work. I mean, one of the things that we have in place, we have 113 health departments and we've made it very clear. uh, If your place of work you don't think is is safe, uh, you should be reporting that to the health department. I can tell you uh, people have done that in, in, in the past and we encourage them to do that in the future. We've come up with some very, very tough not guidelines, but mandates for businesses. Uh, every employee is supposed to wear uh, a mask. Fran, my wife, Fran, made that Let me see me. it. I, I wore it. Uh, Let me yeah. see it. Your wife goes out of her way to make it, and you give it a half a second on yeah. television? Yeah. Come on. What do you think? Come on. There you go. Very good. That's over your eyes. What are you doing, Gov? There you go. (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. Well done. Um, That has been. I like that it's two sided. Um, So how do you make sure that it works fair uh, for both sides? Uh, I get called back to work. I don't want to go. I hear bad things about it. I show up and their things aren't being done the right way. Now they report me and all of a sudden my unemployment is cut. Um, unless I know the system well enough to get ahead of it, how do you protect a worker from being acted on by an employer unfairly? You said, well, they can go and say that it was an unsafe place. But once you have your money pulled, you're at a disadvantage as the worker. So how do you protect them in this situation? Well, I think we're going to have to watch that. Uh, you know, look, most, most employers uh, want a safe place because they want to be able to attract employees to come. Uh, if people don't think it's safe, they're not, they're not going to come. Uh, but by having the ability in Ohio for someone to call in and make a report, they, it can be an anonymous report to the local health department. So that employee could and call in, could call in. They wouldn't have to say who they are. And our health departments will go out and we will inspect. Uh, it's so important that people feel safe and that they actually be safe uh, at work. These are, these are people who are, you know, who are doing it every single day. So, uh, you, you make an interesting point, but I think that, I think the system that we have in place does in fact work and will work. Yeah. I don't have any reason to question it. I'm just saying that obviously the deference should be on the side of the worker because they don't have the power, uh, of, of what the employer does, especially if reporting them gets their money pulled 
and there's no real appellate mechanism that works, they're going to be in a hole as soon as somebody drops a dime on them. Uh, the House Republicans are trying to limit orders issued by the Ohio Department of Health to 14 days. You need legislative approval for any extension. Uh, you are a brilliant example of keeping politics out of health policy thus far in your state. Why allow politicians to decide anything about uh, what a health department thinks? Well, I've got a great health director, as you know, Dr. Amy Acton. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've followed her advice. We not only her advice, but we pulled in every expert that we could find to make those decisions. But Chris, I've, I've made it very clear. Uh, and we've had protesters uh, at her house and right. we've had people who are up, upset. And I've, I've said to the protesters, look, you know, the buck stops with me. I'm the governor. I'm making the decisions. Uh, you know, leave my health director alone and, and come after me, demonstrate against me, complain of, about me. Don't don't go after her. Um, you know what the, uh, the House of Representatives did, I think, was was uh, a, a mistake. And uh, I've made it very clear that if that bill ever got to my desk, that, that I would veto that. Some this people a, are playing some weird politics. You know, you have this beautiful mask that your wife made, and I know why you're wearing it. I know you're making an example. I know it's not easy for some people um, to want to wear a mask, but you're, you're leading the way, even if it's not popular. But not every politician's like that. I tried to have this guy, I tried to give him a fair hearing on the show tonight, and they bagged out at the last second. Nino Vital. I'm afraid he's one of mine. Sounds like an Italian guy. Him saying he's not going to wear a mask because I'm made in Jesus's image and Jesus didn't have one. I mean, is that who you want, being able to, to control health well, department policy? Look, look, well, you know, he has a right to say that, and people Doesn't have a right not right to wear a mask. But, <laughs> well, what we're, what we're trying to do is explain to people, and you've made it very clear on your show, and we, we try to do this every press conference, that when you wear this, you're not wearing it for yourself. You're wearing it for the other person. Yes. And if we all do that, it's going to add an extra layer of, uh, of protection. Look. We're going back to work in Ohio and, and across this country. And so our risk is up. I mean, it's just it's, it, it's a fact when we start intermixing more and doing more things. And so it's so very important, much more important than any of it was before, that we keep the social distancing, uh, that we wear that mask uh, to protect that other person. And if we do those things. Um, we're going to be able to bring the economy back uh, and we're going to be also be able to to protect people. But we got we have to do it. And it's more important today that we do it than it, than it was two weeks ago when we were not starting back and, and opening things up in Ohio. Right. Because so that's get- that's my message to our Ohio viewers. Uh, it's it's this is this is important. Well, look, also, Governor, uh, your mandate has been expanded. You're one of the governors who has risen to the top as a national leader on this. My audience is not Ohio specific. Uh, There are people watching you all over the country and the world because thus far you have done the job of balancing that you haven't made it binary. We go back to work or we stay healthy. You are fighting very hard to find ways to go back to work while balancing public health. Uh, And my job, obviously, is to make sure that that continues. And I appreciate you using this platform uh, to make the case for what you're doing in your state, Governor Mike DeWine. I wish you good health. Uh, Send the best to your wife and your family. And thank you. You as well. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. All right. Be well. The other big story of this night. Today should have been Ahmaud Arbery's 26th birthday. Instead, his family and the nation are now watching as a white father and son face murder charges in the shooting death of an unarmed black 
jogger. And that is the key word, jogger. I know black is also a key word, but I'm saying in the facts here. You know what Arbery's father calls this shooting? A lynching. It's a strong word, especially for an African-American to use. Why? Marcus Arbery, on the day that should be his son's birthday, joins us next. All right. You cannot lose sight of this shooting death of the jogger in Georgia. Today would have been Ahmad Arbery's 26th birthday. To celebrate him, people across the world took to the pavement in the I Run for Maud movement. They ran 2.23 miles because he was killed on February 23rd. Last night, just after we got word of the arrest of a father and son in the shooting, uh, Gregory, Gregory and Travis McMichael, I spoke with Ahmad's sister, Jasmine, to share memories of her brother. Tonight, I'm joined by Ahmad's father, Marcus Arbery, and family attorney, whom I know very well, uh, Counselor Benjamin Crump. Um, first of all, sir, Counselor, always good to see you. Uh, Mr. Arbery, I'm very sorry to meet you under these circumstances, and I'm not going to take up a lot of your time. There'll be plenty of time for us to talk. There's a lot ahead of us in this situation. But what do you want people to know about your son and what this means to you? I just want people to know that he was a very good young man and he loved the people. And I just want people to remember him as a good hearted young man. And and he was the type of young man, if he had one dollar and you need that one dollar, he would give it to you. That's just how good his heart was. And I don't seen him work the whole week, 40 hours. And if you need his whole check, he gave it to him. And I sit there and told my son, that son, no, don't work and get your whole check up, you know, but that's just how good or hard he was. Everybody loved him. If you know him, you'd see he was a, a very man of a good young man. And, you know, to see him just get lynched like that by a racial mob like that, it's just, it just devastating to our family. These are heavy words uh, for you to use. Why do you see it as a lynching by a racial mob. When you come at a young man, you jump on the back of a pickup truck with a shotgun, a pump shotgun, and a 357 Magnum in a pickup truck like some racial movie, and you follow him like he was an animal and gun him down like he was an animal. He tried, you know, he's doing it running. And he tried to avoid y'all. And he just tried to stay out y'all way. Y'all just kept on pursuing him and blocking him in with that truck. And he didn't have no chance. All he did is just try to defend himself. He didn't have no win. Three men with guns, an unarmed black African-American man, didn't give him no chance. Because the color of his skin, it just, that just aren't recalled for racist, hatred. And that's 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 no place in this Brunswick for that. That's 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 just out the window. That's just got to get from around him. That's why I want these men to stay in jail. I don't want them to bond out. I just want them to get life centers. I, I, I we we just don't believe in killing. I just want them to suffer like how my family suffering. I want them to, 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 to see my son face every day to do time. I want them to see his face. I just want them to just suffer hard because uh, I, I, I just don't believe in no death. You know what I'm saying? I just want you to stay locked up so these mad monsters won't get out here and kill nobody again. And it's a it's a really 
interesting degree of mercy when you're feeling your worst, uh, that even now you don't want to see death for the men who did this. Uh, you just want them to be punished. Uh, look, the only right way to do this is I, I understand how you feel. Uh, I want to talk to Benjamin Crump about some of the legal aspects of this early on, because it's not fair for you to have to deal with it, Mr. Arbery. Uh, now, Ben, you can handle this stuff. You know what's going to happen. The defense here yeah. is going to be uh, this kid is not who he's being made out to be. He was running away. Uh, he was running away from the scene of a crime. And maybe even one of these guys knew him uh, from an earlier case against him that was referred to in a recusal letter from this guy, Barnhill, who was uh, one of the prosecutors who recused himself. What do you make of that first set of allegations? Running away, leaving the scene of a crime. Uh, they knew him from an earlier case. Chris, we've been here before, whether it's Trayvon Martin or Tamir Rice or any other uh, cases that just were unjustifiable, uh, unnecessary deaths. And when you think about when they kill our children, they then try to assassinate their character. And I know that that's what they're going to try to do with Ahmaud Aubrey. But the truth of the matter is we have the objective evidence. You have that 911 tape when they ask, uh, what is he doing wrong? They never answered because he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was simply jogging, Chris. And the fact that we have that video, that video that we cannot unsee once you see this lynching in 2020, not 1920, Chris, but 2020. And the fact that it took 74 days for them to arrest these killers, even though they had the video evidence. And I want to be clear for the record, Chris Como, it wasn't because they saw the video, they being the law authorities that made them arrest these killers. It was because we, the people, saw the video and made them arrest these killers. We, the people, refused to remain silent once we saw the unbelievable lynching of a young black man in America in 2020. Right. Um, listen, I hear you about it. Uh, the tape, the fact that they've had it, the video is damning. I know you heard uh, me last night say to Jasmine, uh, Arbery's uh, Ahmad's sister, that I'm sorry it took me this long uh, to get on it. I should have known better, especially with all the experience that you and I have, uh, let alone all the other cases. But look, I'm going to look at the case forensically because the only way to get justice is give the benefit of everything that can be brought up. I'm not doing that in, fa in front of Ahmad's uh, father. Mr. Arbery, uh, God bless. I'm sorry for your family's pain. I hope the justice provides some solace and that justice is served. Uh, ben Crump, I'm always a call away with what happens in this case. We will not leave it until it meets its resolution. I promise you that. Thank you so much, Chris. All right. And again, uh, Mr. Arbery, my best to the family if we can help. I want to talk about the legal aspects. I'm not doing it in front of his father. All right. We have one of our best, Laura Coates. She knows the prosecution side of this. Laura, you play the prosecutor. I will push up what we're going to hear here. OK. And to repeat a little of it, uh, just real quick for people. Uh, yes, there is a, um, a private citizen can make an arrest law in Georgia. You have to witness a crime. Uh, you have to be able to do it safely. You cannot use force in detaining somebody, uh, let alone unnecessary force. They don't have a defense under that law. Stand your ground is also at place in Georgia. 
You don't get to start an altercation repeatedly the way they did and then rely on stand your ground. Just for you saying that online, you're not lawyers or you're not getting the law right. Now, Laura, first pushback. We know this guy. One of us had something to do with a case before uh, on him. He was described to us as somebody who would have been part of some criminal spree in our area. And when we came up on him just to ask him questions, he ran. You absolutely have no right to believe you can usurp the role of police. If these two men believed that he was somebody who was a suspect in a crime, they had a phone call to make. It was called 911. The fact that one of them was a former investigator, a former police officer, Chris, I ask you, I'm a former prosecutor. Does that mean I can walk into any courtroom in America and indict someone because I think I know what this case is about? No, there are proper channels to pursue. And one of the things that every prosecutor and frankly, every member of law enforcement should look at this case and say, if you believe that there is somebody that requires police attention, you should call three numbers. It's the easiest thing to learn. And again, you mentioned two things, Chris, I really want to highlight here. One of them is, yes, there is a citizen's arrest law in Georgia, but you have to actually have witnessed the crime or have immediate knowledge. Not that you think the other day you may have seen someone who matched a description. He may have put his hand down his pants at some point a few days ago. There may have been a gun missing a couple months ago. You have no way to tie this person. And yet you still pursue with a shotgun trying to cut him off. He's jogging down the middle of the street at one o'clock in the afternoon, and you believe that you have every right to stop him. Yes, there's a citizen's arrest law, but you have to be able to turn the person over to the police. And by the way, somebody being confronted in this way after being hunted down has no requirement to stop for you. The idea of having to stop for a police officer requires just that, a police officer. If you don't have that, every single person who decides that they themselves can do the law better, can be a part of the wild, wild west, can be the sheriff around this here parts, whether they have a badge or not, would then be able to stop anyone for any reason, detain them for as long as they felt it was necessary, which is akin to kidnapping and false imprisonment, and then decide whether the person's response has satisfied them. That can't stand. And on the 911 call, you hear them being asked, what did he do? What did he do? They don't have a good answer. Now, I'll tell you, in terms of why did this take so long, I got to tell you, I take Trump's position. Um, This tape being seen by people like you and me and media and going to Governor Kemp and saying, what the hell? And him saying, we need answers. I think that changed the calculus. This guy, Barnhill, who wrote a letter recusing himself, which was the right move. He says in the letter, there is video of Arbery burglarizing a home immediately preceding the chase and confrontation. That's not true. There is video of him entering a construction site, not taking anything. And walking out like an, almost an attractive nuisance situation where you go in there, you look, there's a dock, you walk down to the dock. I know you're not supposed to be there. I know it's mm-hmm. trespassing. But if that's the best thing they have, first of all, why did Barnhill characterize it that way uh, when any cursory investigation would show that's a BS reckoning? And what does that tell you about the disposition of how the police and authorities apparently took this situation from jump? 
No, really, the first issue here is why is a prosecutor who's recused himself offering any statement whatsoever about a case? If you've recused yourself based on a conflict of interest that you have perceived or one that has been relayed to you, you should not be commenting on a case. The very notion and the reason we have recusals is because you are now perceived as inherently biased and cannot be an objective messenger of the facts or relayer of any information. So for him to put it out there, what he believes to be the facts of this case and having recused himself is really poisoning not only the well, but a potential jury pool and inserting himself in a way that really undermines the overall credibility and objectivity of the office, which was already in question. Because, you know, one of the things to keep in mind here is not just the delay. I know people are thinking to themselves, well, we can't hold a grand jury, Laura. You've got the stay-at-home orders in places at least until June 12th in Georgia. This case happened on February 23rd. The killing happened on February 23rd. There wasn't a stay-at-home order until April. So what transpired between February to April is the clear moment you say to yourself, well, what were the tactics? What were the decisions? Exactly. Well, what was taking place was they had time to make a letter, a letter by by a recused prosecutor who had no business inserting himself similar to people who have no business making a citizen's arrest when 911 was an available option. Laura Coates, thank you for putting the mind to this matter. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Great asset to have. All right, Sean Penn is here tonight. He has a relief organization. He is not a known face fronting for a PSA or something. Not that there's anything wrong with that. He's got an organization that is helping tens of thousands of Americans while also making the jobs of first responders easier. I haven't seen anything like it happening anywhere else. And it is something that can be put anywhere in the country. He is our American tonight. We're going to get after it with Sean Penn next. Uh, Easy choice for American tonight. Oscar winner Sean Penn has nothing to do with his acting. His organization, CORE, has set up coronavirus testing sites in Atlanta, Detroit, all over California. They're expanding to the Navajo Nation. Why the Navajo Nation? It's the third biggest concentration of cases in the country on that reservation. We had the president of uh, the nation here uh, to talk about it. Sean Penn, thank you for taking the time to be with us tonight. My pleasure to be with you, Chris. So what have you figured out about how to do this uh, easily, efficiently, and repeatedly? Well, we, we had the benefit of being in California where the leadership of Governor Newsom and the mayors of San Francisco, Mayor Garcetti of Los Angeles, and in the case of Los Angeles with the Los Angeles Fire Department, had set up very uh, pre- good systems of testing. We went to them and asked as, a, as an emergency response organization, we had an infrastructure for it. What could we do? What, 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 where, how could we help? On each of the test sites, you had a, a 20 firefighters, L.A. firefighters, who were doing the tests. If you had a brush fire, you had needs for some of those who were paramedics and the other emergency response uh, units. They wouldn't have been able to respond to the things outside those parking lots in the city that, that, where they were deployed to test. So we went in, they tested, uh, they trained us uh, into their program. We started testing uh, a few weeks ago. We're up to 100,000 tested. The, uh, and, and just that partnership between a government organization and an NGO was seemed to me to be the, the, the way this could be possibly done, replicated, so that, in fact, unlike what the admiral who's being touted as the testing czar said, which is, I think, had a ludicrous lack of faith in the American spirit. 
and saying that we couldn't test every American. We could test every American two times a week. The only missing uh, element of that is the, the level of defense production focused on mass production of the PPE, as well as the tests and, and some resourcing of the labs and the uh, uh, more, more robust um, uh, lab response, uh, micro labs included. So you believe so this can t- be done all over the country with different NGO organizations. It doesn't have to be just core response. Uh, and you've put out a manual for how to do it. What are the main elements that'll make this work, say, if people wanted to do it in New York? Well, whether it's New York or a, a rural area, a, a, a suburban area, we made the manual so that it was as adaptable as possible. The only, the only question mark in the manual is that which the federal government could, could most certainly provide, which, are, which is these mass production of these, uh, the materials they would need to do the test. The testing itself is rather simple. Uh, our job is to make sure that the efficacy of the test is lived up to in the administration of the tests. So that's, that's what we're very diligent about. We have a, a slogan, slow is smooth, smooth is fast, and blood is slippery. And we don't want to have a, 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 a slippery finger on a hot trigger. We want to make sure that people are not getting a negative, a, a, a false negative. And our, and our teams of volunteers are extraordinary. So what we've seen is that you can take people, people have great will in these places. We're all, we are already, as I said, in Atlanta, in New Orleans, we're in Detroit. And, and all of the sites throughout California, because we're also working with the governor's project in Bakersfield and Oakland and, and in Napa Valley. And there's no and we only hire local to train and, and we pay them because a lot of these people have jobs also. So it's kind of a, a stimulus for them. And they come out and they work their You know what's off. Right. And they quit because they care about their community. That's a replicable thing. Let me ask you one quick thing uh, before we go, which is. The idea of what we're hearing from the White House that, you know, a testing's a little overblown, uh, you know, it, it works, but you can't test everybody. And some governors think there's a better way than testing to know what's going on. Uh, what do you believe about the reality of testing in terms of its value in getting us through this pandemic and giving the confidence to reopen? Well, I'm not going to spend any time arguing. I'm not a scientist. My belief is in the scientists. And, and, the, and the testing does two essential things. One is it will tell somebody if they are positive or negative to COVID-19. If somebody is positive, they immediately isolate. And then comes the contact tracing component. The other part of it is that all the information provided from the people who come in, and I think in great citizenry, especially the asymptomatics, who don't know for sure, come in to test, that goes to the, the, the uh, public health surveillance and that's part of what we are told So we're, is, is going to get, get us to a vaccine. So we're mission-focused on testing, and we're trying to be fluid. We may have to pivot, and we'll be ready to do that. The reason uh, this resonates with me so much uh, is not just because the godfather of one of my kids is a good friend of yours and a good friend of mine and told me about it, but that it is the linking mechanism between the federal government putting it on the states and the states not being able to do it all by themselves and not getting the funding to do the same. NGOs can fill a very important space. You are proof of performance in that regard. Sean Penn, I salute you as an American and thank you for being with me tonight. Let me know how I can help. You you, you and your family are an extraordinary force for service here. and we, We thank you. Thank you. You know, you can get me. I'm a call away. God bless and good luck. Be healthy. Thank you. All right. Sean Penn making a difference. Period.
We'll be right back. Tonight's cheer for healthcare workers is a little different. Uh, take a look and I'll explain. I was finally in the city for when they do the cheer. I'm taking a shower. I start to hear all this noise outside, and I realize what <laughs> it is. Did you hear me? I almost bust Did my you ass hear me? getting out of the shower, and I start cheering for them and, and recording it uh, while I'm doing it. I had my thumb over the I wish I, I wish you would have busted your you-know-what. <laughs> did you hear me say, I wasn't sure I was on, I said, is that him? <laughs> <laughs> I was so pumped up. The whole block, everybody was at their windows. Uh, it was such a cool thing to see and be a part of it. I, I was terrible at shooting it, but what an amazing thing to witness firsthand. How, you know, I'm on the Upper East Side there, and the whole place came alive for them because there's so many hospitals in the area. It's amazing to be there at seven o'clock, and I'm glad that there are no there were no reflective surfaces to see you. I, I, actually, said that, I actually said that to Rosalie when we were looking. I was like, "You don't see anything." Um, hey, speaking of cheers, from cheers to but, jeers, did you hear us in the truck the other day? No, I didn't. When you were jogging oh, across you, the you, street, you and somebody said, house? "Somebody said, keep running, fat boy," and you turned around. <laughs> that was Bella driving my truck. I figured it was if it, you know, I'm used to people yelling at me. You had the mask on, but you had some angry eyes when you turned around. (laughs) I think you got me. If I was running across the bridge, it was right when my hat fell off. So I had a hat on and I had the mask on because, you know, people are people are looking for us to making sure we're to make sure we're doing the right thing. And I'm always trying to run. With a mask on. It's not easy. Uh, I tried to do it with gloves on. It's just impossible. It's not easy. You were about 50 yards behind your fiance. And Bella was like, I think that's Don Lemon. (laughs) And I said, keep running, fat boy. And you went like this. (laughs) Listen, on a serious note, I do it for people like you who have had the virus so that others don't get it. And I do it for those people that you were cheering in your shower and I want to do the right thing. I don't care if it's hard for me because I can only imagine how tough it is when your lungs were giving you, you know, the business when you were going through it. So a little a little jog with a mask on every once in a while. I take it down to catch my breath when I get a little open area where there aren't a lot of people. And then when I see folks, I put it right back on. So that's we're doing it. But you're right, man, this quarantine put on a couple extra pounds. I got to get them off, Chris. You look you're gonna good. Do, you're going to help me. Uh, once you look good, D-Lemon. Once you we get good. some time You're a off. handsome man. You yeah. can thank your mom for that. Thank you. Thank you, brother. I love you. Have a great weekend. I'll see you soon, okay? I love you. I hope to see you soon, brother. We'll be watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. 
It could be used on an upcoming episode.